Phil, you good there? Great, awesome. Um, in 1 Peter, the, one of the apostles, Peter, uh, he, wrote, uh, he wrote that the angels long to look into the gospel. So as God was telling his story through time and space, the angels in heaven were watching and waiting and desiring to see what was going to unfold, what was God going to do, and they were eager to, to see the gospel unfold and God's way with man and uh, what was going to happen how God was going to graciously save sinners. And now we know this gospel. We know this gospel about Jesus who came from heaven, the Son of God who left heaven to enter this world, to live as a human, to live in our place, to receive the punishment that we deserve, to, to face the wrath of God in our, in our place, to die, to face death, the, the, um, the consequence of sin is death, to face death, to be buried, to be raised to life as a king of eternity, and to be able to make a way of reconciliation between God and man. We, the, this incredible gospel that says to us that through faith in Jesus, we are not only reconciled to God, but our hope uh, is returned. Uh, we have hope again of in eternity, a hope of living with God uh, in a perfect world again. We, we find out that uh, God is recreating heaven and earth and preparing for us a place to dwell with Him uh, with no sickness or sorrow or sadness. It's remarkable. The gospel, if it wasn't true, the gospel would sound like a fantasy. It's fantastical. And, and here's what you should do with something that's fantastical or fantasy. Be entertained by it, but don't believe in it. Put up with it, but don't give your life to it, right? My son, uh, through, I'm not sure why, but he gets lots and lots of uh, messages that he's one of self, a cell phone, and it's usually the best iPhone Pro or something, and it's like, Dad, 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 I want a phone, and I was like, well, what competition have you entered? I haven't. I'm just like a winner. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, that's, don't, don't follow that link. Don't <laughs> click on that link. But then I'll never get this phone. And you and I both know that it's a scam, that it's fraud, that he's uh, going to get suck, suck it into something. But I tell you what, if someone offered me a house, even though I know it would probably be a scam, I would still find out about it. Because it's too good to not find out about it, right? You've just got to check it out sometimes. And that's kind of like the gospel. The gospel offers you something even greater than a house, this eternity of perfection, of reconciliation with God, of uh, no death, no suffering, of just joy, and you, you'd be, you, you would be silly not to look into it, right? And what we're going to find out this morning um, is, I hope, is that the gospel is too good to not look into. Um, the gospel doesn't exist without a risen Savior. In order for the gospel to be true, you have to have someone who's raised from the dead. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then there's no gospel. Um, so that's important. The gospel announces Christ has been risen from the dead. And if he hasn't been raised from the dead, then the gospel is a big scam. If it's true, the gospel changes everything. Uh, what I want to try and take you down a, a journey this morning is to try and see that when we talk about faith, if, now for those of you who are, who are Christians in this room, which is probably most of everyone, when we talk about faith, sometimes if someone goes, what is faith? Or like, uh, how, how do you find faith? Or how do you get faith? And we, we kind of um, stumble and, and, and we start to sound to ourselves uh, quite silly. Like, no, you just believe. Well, that doesn't really sound reasonable. No, it's not reasonable. It's like, you just, you just, you just faith, you just believe. You just believe in God. And that's the only way. You can't, if God has to prove it to you, then it's not faith. And it's, if we start to stumble a little bit, 
what I want to try to show you this morning is that faith isn't opposed to reason or logic. It's just much greater than reason or logic. It just, faith stands on reason and logic. And we're going to see some of how reasonable the gospel is. That when, if someone wants to look into it, there's plenty for them to think about. Plenty for them to consider and understand. Faith ends up, I think, being much more than evidence. But it's not without any reason. And that's what we're going to look at. Two things we're going to look at today is out of John's story that he's uh, written for us, out of, out of the message that he's got. Two things that are, I think are surprising is there's, there's something to put our minds to rest. If we look at this and consider it, there's something that puts our minds to rest. And secondly, there's someone to set our hearts on fire. Firstly, something to put our minds to rest. If you're curious about it, if you're thinking about it, if you're contemplating, or even if you're a Christian, you're like, I don't know how I got you. Is it just because my parents were Christians? Maybe that's why I believe. Maybe I really don't believe. Do I have faith? I don't know. Uh, Even if that's you, something to put your mind to rest. Things to consider that are thoughtful. Um, Firstly, Mary Magdalene. To understand uh, some of this evidence, you have to consider the culture that's in the Scriptures itself. It wasn't modern Australia uh, and, and kind of the things that we're fighting for, it was the culture then. And what the culture was then, uh, woman had a very low place in the culture. Um, if you wanted to tell a story that was believable, you wouldn't put the story into the mouth of a, a woman in that culture. Uh, and so to have, first of all, to have Mary come and be the first person <laughs> to find the tomb of Jesus empty is uh, not something that someone writing in that culture to tell a believable story would think of telling, think of making up. If you go read the four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you go read their stories, accounts, accounts together, what you find is it's not just Mary. Through all their different accounts, there's five women, at least, who get to the tomb before the disciples, before the, the more famous male disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, those guys that we know about. Uh, before they show up, there's at least five women who show up before them uh, at the, and see this empty tomb. Culturally, that's not a good way to build a credible story. Mary Magdalene, she's somehow become famous through stories uh, for being a prostitute and then Jesus changing her life and then she follows Jesus. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that. What the Bible does show, though, is that she, uh, she was someone who was possessed by demons uh, and if you think about that, in the, the other stories that we know in Scripture, where someone was possessed by demons, you have people who are uh, put out of society because no one knows what to do with them. There's people who are just uh, chronically sick and struggling in life with, with some uh, really horrendous problems. And every time Jesus comes and kind of frees someone uh, from some sort of demon possession, he, he's almost like taking them from outside of society and putting them back in, uh, which is beautiful. But then Mary is in this kind of position where she's kind of outside of society, uh, probably. It doesn't say much. You think about that one guy who was living in a cave naked, uh, possessed with demons. Like he's, no one wanted anything to do with him until Jesus uh, freed him of a legion of demons, and then he went back into society, telling everyone about all that Christ has done, had done for him. So Mary was unlikely to be the most kind of uh, welcomed person within her people. Um, but... Jesus frees her of, of seven demons, that's what we read, and she becomes one of his most uh, devoted followers. Mary, um, the Bible d- depicts Mary as someone who is so grateful for Jesus, she never leaves his side. 
Um, and so she's the first one here. They've had a Sabbath rest. They can't go to the tomb on that day. The first day, the dawn of the next morning, the first time she can, she's right there. She's devoted to even dead Jesus. But this is Mary. And Jesus reveals himself to Mary first. Not something uh, you would think of making up in, this, in that day and age. Instead of the male disciples, and Charlotte read it to us, she had to go and call them. Come and see it. His tomb's empty and he's gone. Um, she wasn't the kosher choice of the time. Uh, definitely not. And so Mary Magdalene's not someone that you, you make up and put in the resurrection story of Jesus, unless that's how it happened. Unless you're just telling the story as it unfolded. And that's how John writes to us, that Mary came and called him and Peter. He never names himself, but he talks about the, this other disciple, which, which uh, commentators believe is John. Mary comes and calls John and Peter, and they go, now that, that puts, I'll get to it in a moment, that puts him and Peter, the disciples, in quite a, a different light. Why? Well, firstly, you've got at least five women going to the tomb before you. You're, you're John and Peter, Jesus' is like beloved inner circle disciples. And then they're having to come and call you to come and check out the tomb of Jesus. So what are you doing? Where have you been? Jesus has been telling you for at least three years what he's going to do. You've just spent Thursday night having the Passover where he told you exactly what he was going to do and that three days later he'd be raised from the dead. You never believed him, so you're at home sulking. (laughs) These are profound disciples. These are not stories you make up unless they are true. This is not how you talk about yourself unless that's how you were. And so John has to have Mary come and fetch him to go and check out the tomb. And and it says that him and Peter go to the tomb and he sees the clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, the the dead clothes, the the whatever. And (laughs) they folded and placed nice. Now this is where I want to, as a father, use this story to tell my kids about how they should tidy their room because even when Jesus raised from the dead, he took the time to fold his clothes. (laughs) That's not the moral of the story. That, That would be legalism and religion. But, you know, Scripture says Jesus does all things well. He even raises from the dead well. And Peter, John looks in, and there he sees Jesus' clothes folded. But he doesn't see the face cloth because he won't go that far in. Peter hears about it. John tells him, Peter can't wait. I mean, Peter's always rushing into everything, normally with his mouth. But now he rushes in, and he rushes all the way in, and he sees the face cloth. And he tells John, and John didn't see that. So now go read the story again. You see, John goes in a second time. He goes, oh, yeah, Peter's right. That is the face cloth. I mean, someone, you know, like someone's taken this face cloth off of Jesus, folded and put it next to, something's happened. And here's John and Peter, and they're not really sure what's going on. And so they rush back. The only reason to write a testimony like this, in which you are really slow to understand the things that have been spoken to you for three years, the things that you just were told Thursday night, the things you still don't get, and you go home to your house perplexed, confused. And you guys, the world changes, who've walked with the Messiah, His great representatives on earth, go home scratching your head, what's going on? Where's He gone? Who's taken Him? They're not looking for the risen Jesus. They've just lost the dead one. You don't write this into the story unless it's true. Uh... I don't know if you remember when you wrote kids' stories. 
Uh, my wife and I have an uh, infinite amount of children, it feels like at times, and they write stories. And in all of their stories, they're usually the great heroes because that's who we are as people. We, we always have heroes. That's one of the archetypes we want is the hero of the story. And we, we as best as possible, we want to be part of that, right? So John and Peter, it's unlikely that they write themselves into the story as big duds if, um, unless that's how it was, just thinking it out. Uh, what about the resurrection? The linen cloths. Remember, when we come to the story, we come to a finished story. We share the story complete, and then we talk about it as a finished story. They're not coming to a finished story. They're in the story. They're in the history that's unfolding before them. One of the things that they would have never thought of is a resurrection. Some Jews believed in a resurrection, that's true. But the way they believed it was going to work out is that within their belief system was that God at some stage was going to raise all believers together and there would be one great resurrection. There was no narrative, no belief system, even in the Jewish faith from which Christianity comes, that there would be a messianic resurrection and then at some other stage resurrection. This was, this isn't, so they weren't looking for that. And yet we have something that's unimaginable. In fact, it's even harder to get there when you think about the fact that they would have, in their time, had false messiahs. People who came through preaching, teaching, doing some signs and wonders as well, uh, not nearly like Christ, but, but with a similar message. I'm the messiah spoken of. And, and some people, history shows, some people believed it, they thought it was true, but then that messiah would be put to death and there, there was never a resurrection. It was just, pre- oh, okay, that was a false messiah. Now we see it. They're dead. And the most natural thing to believe then would be that Jesus was another false messiah. He's dead like all the others. We thought he was different. That's probably more likely the kind of thought that they're at home going, we really thought this one was different. All the evidence suggested this one was different. How can he be dead like the other fakes? So the resurrection is a complete surprise. You wouldn't think of writing something that's not within your faith belief system, that's not within your historical moment, you know, the opposite has been seen, unless it's what happened. The resurrection to them is a complete surprise. You've heard it every Easter, most of you, for most of your life. For them, they'd never heard it, never imagined it, and it happened. And they reported it. There's another one. It's, it's uh, deserved of mention. It's, it's uh, honorable mention, but it's not in the text. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. He's writing a letter to the Corinthians, answering a lot of their questions. The Corinthians, if you ever wonder if God can really love you as a messed up Christian, go read the Corinthians. In, uh, this is just a side note. I, I, in the, in the church in Corinth has written to Paul and asked him a bunch of questions about stuff that's going on in the church. And Paul writes back to them with a bunch of answers. That's 1 Corinthians in your Bibles. When you read it, you're only hearing Paul's side of the discussion. You've got to imagine what the question is that Paul's answering. But when you imagine the question that Paul's answering, you realize they are messed up. (laughs) There are, honestly, I mean, you just go like, whoa, I'm not going to judge anyone's faith again. I mean, wow, they've got some problems, major problems. Anyway, Paul says to them, back to the story, 
in chapter 15, verse 6, he says um, that there are hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has revealed himself to hundreds of people uh, and maybe even thousands. Now, here's the thing. To you and I, we go, oh, well, great. He, you know, anyone could say that. Uh, you just may. But, but not, that, not so for Paul. Because when Paul was writing, most of those people were still alive. Paul, Paul was saying, look, if you're not sure about this gospel message, if you don't believe the message I've preached to you, if you're not sure that Christ has been risen, if you're starting to believe all these other messages and your faith is starting to wane and you're starting to question the gospel, just go speak to the hundreds of people still alive who saw them with their own eyes. That's not something you would say unless you had confidence. That's not the kind of uh, promise or suggestion you make to struggling people unless you're sure about what they're going to hear. Last, uh, last one is what about, cha- uh, what about the changed lives? So you might look at that and you go, well, you, you, if you're really cynical, you might look at that and go, no, there's different ways to imagine uh, that that came together, different ways the story... And, and, and that's far... far that, you've got to really stretch to get there. But still, something you have to account for is the changed lives. The disciples. The people that believe post-resurrection. Think about their context. This is not you and I sitting down in a cafe and going, am I going to be secular... Do I want to be an atheist, agnostic? Do I want to be into New Age? Uh, do I want to be a Christian? Do I want to be Jew? Do I want to Muslim? Do I, this is not you sitting down thinking about what do I want to believe? What do I want to identify myself as? What will get me a better job in this society? What will people uh, like about me uh, in, the, in this kind of space? This is, this is not that. These are people who with the profession of their faith, in the context that Christ has just been put to death, dead, believe that He is raised from the dead. That's part of their, that's part of their statement. And remember that when, when, people, when these preachers, Paul, Peter, uh, and the other disciples and apostles were arrested, what they were told to do is to be silent about their profession of faith, to stop saying that Christ has been raised from the dead. They could have done that and walked on with their lives. And yet we have disciples crucified upside down. Disciples thrown off of buildings and beaten and stoned. Disciples boiled in pots. The most horrendous deaths you can imagine. Faced from those deaths faced with grace and peace and joy. When all they had to do was just go, sorry, I was, we made that up. Hundreds and hundreds of people who the thought to deny the risen Savior didn't cross their mind. Why? Because they had seen Him. Because He had become their delight and joy. And because death no longer had a sting. Because they knew where they were going to be with Him. If you knew that Christ had risen, 
if you had seen him and if you knew that everything else he had said and promised and everything that he was doing about it, an eternal future was settled in your heart, when that moment came, you realize there's very little you can do to me. Death is merely a door into eternity with him. Do your worst. And that's what the history of uh, these disciples shows us. Their faith never waned. They never shrunk back. Their lives were changed forever. Paul, uh, as an example, you know, you know him and he sees this vision of Christ along the road. He's on his way to persecute Christians. He's on his way to arrest them and do worse if he can. He's already seen Stephen stoned and put to death. Act 6, 7. Now Paul is, is on his way and he has permission to go and do this. And he sees a vision of Christ. And by the time he arrives there, he's now preaching the gospel that he was persecuting. That doesn't happen unless something in your heart changed. Unless you started to believe something. Paul lost everything. He was famous. He was this young uh, intellectual stud. Lost everything. Became no one. Nothing. For the sake of the gospel. You don't explain changed lives unless something changed lives. The only obvious explanation for the changed lives of the disciples is the re resurrection of Jesus happened. And if the resurrection of Jesus happened, it changes lives. That's something we can put our minds to rest. Something happened to the disciples, something that changed their lives in an instant. It's a great, le it's a great leap of faith to believe that the disciples made this up and then lived and died by it. Hundreds and thousands of people as well. That's a, that's a great leap of faith. Um, but it's reasonable to believe that they believed the story simply because it was the truth that they saw unfold. So if that's something you can use to reason with, to think on, to consider as you're curious about the faith, as you're thinking about it, that's not faith itself. Faith is much more than that, but faith stands upon reason and logic. It, it's not against talking about it, thinking about it, understanding it. But what's some, something or someone that can set our hearts aflame? You know as well as I do that knowing stuff doesn't change us. Having head knowledge doesn't change who we are. Every single one of us, we won't do this because it would be slightly embarrassing and vulnerable, but we could go around the room from left to right and we could say, what's something that you know that you do nothing about? Like, for example, I know that if I worked out, I would be fitter and healthier and probably spend a lot more time staring at myself in the mirror. <laughs> but I can't tell you the last time I worked out. I know it, but I do nothing about it. I'd rather just not eat food than have to go and work out. <laughs> Forgive me. You might know things about life. You might know that if you studied, you'd probably do well on that exam. That doesn't mean that you study or do well on the exam. You may know that if you were kinder to the people around you, there'd be less conflict. You don't care because you just want to be right. So you do nothing about what you know. And you keep creating conflict. Do you get what I'm trying to say? We can move left to right. And, and Now knowing all of this about Christ and knowing the gospel doesn't change our lives. Just knowing. Knowing is very much part of it. But just knowing stuff doesn't create changed lives. 
We need something to set our hearts aflame. Something to cause a passion, a cause of fire in our bellies. So what's something that we can set our heart that can set our hearts on fire? I think in this story, some, that something is that Mary is known by name. Suddenly becomes personal and intimate. It's no longer intellectual or academic. It's not about knowledge or theology or doctrine or philosophy. Now it becomes personal. Mary gets known by name. And we'll have a look at it real quick. The problem for Mary in the story is that she's looking for the wrong Jesus. She's looking for Jesus, right? Right? Yeah? She's just looking for the wrong Jesus. What do I mean by that? Tell me. What Jesus is she looking for? Dead Jesus. Adam's tracking with me. Dead Jesus. Well, how else would you describe him? What? Some human Jesus, just merely human Jesus. Weak Jesus. Insignificant now Jesus. I mean, she's just looking for the wrong Jesus. She loves the wrong Jesus. She follows the wrong Jesus. She's devoted to the wrong Jesus. I mean, she loves who Jesus is, but she doesn't see it. She doesn't understand yet fully who this Jesus is. And she can't find him because she's looking for the dead Jesus. And so, no matter how hard she tries, she can't find buried, dead, weak Jesus. Um, And so, this beautiful, good man that's rotting in a grave has gone missing to Mary. So Jesus has to reveal himself to Mary. And Jesus can do this any way he likes. You've seen, we saw uh, in Luke, in the earlier parts of Luke, remember how the angel Gabriel likes to play with those moments? Remember how he reveals himself to Zechariah, the priest? He could reveal himself anywhere. But he waits till Zechariah in the holy place where no one's allowed to go except one priest once a year. And if there's sins that he carries inside, he drops dead and has to get dragged out by a rope because if anyone else follows, they drop dead. And Gabriel waits till he's in that place. And he goes, hello. <laughs> it's like, Gabriel, you could have done it anywhere. And of course, Zechariah terrified when he hears your voice. Who else is going to be there? Or he goes to Mary and he goes, you know, so there's like, Jesus can reveal himself however he wants to Mary. He can have so much fun with it. But look how humble Jesus is. Jesus is so humble, so, so disguised. Mary thinks that he's the gardener. And obviously Jesus hasn't allowed her to understand who he is yet. But he doesn't come as th- this glorious king that no one has seen, riding on a white horse and having this aura of glory. He's, he, he's standing there, seeming like a gardener. Beautiful Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Why are you weeping? Why are you, who are you looking for? And she understands that this gardener is just trying to be helpful to her. She, and so it's like she responds to him like that, you know? Why, why, why are you weeping? Why are you sad? Who are you looking for? I mean, she's standing at a tomb that's open with burial clothes and someone missing. It can't be that the gardener doesn't understand why she's weeping and who she's looking for. But maybe they're not questions. Maybe they're statements. I think what, what Jesus is really saying is, why are you weeping? I'm not dead. I'm alive. And who are you looking for? I'm right here. She's going to see that in a moment. She doesn't just yet. And so to help Mary, Jesus reveals Himself. And how does He do that? 
He reveals Himself, this is significant, by calling her name. He says Mary. And in that moment, as she hears her name on His lips, her ears are properly opened, her eyes are properly opened, her heart is properly opened. She fully understands that this is Jesus. She couldn't make this up. She came looking for a buried and dead Jesus. But when the gardener said her name, she knew that He was alive. She knew that it was Christ. She knew that he, was, he had risen from the dead. And the gospel dropped from her head, things that she had heard him say for three years, all the way to her heart and ignited new life. Rivers of joy. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus comes as a gardener? Remember Genesis? Do you remember Genesis? Remember God creating the narrative of God creating the world? What did he, what did he put Adam and Eve in? Put them in a garden. And he walked with them in the cool of the day. And it's like, this isn't what John says, but to me there's this beautiful picture of again, God almost, Jesus almost redeeming right there in the garden. Again, bringing Mary into her salvation. Walking again in the cool of the day with the Son of God, with the raised Messiah. It probably wasn't nearly as beautiful as Eden, but that's okay, we'll get there eventually. How humble Jesus is. So faith is a gift of God for sure. But because our faith, because Mary's faith is too small, Jesus has to come to us. To put pressure on anyone to say, you have to just have faith. You have to just believe. You have, it's impossible. You can't. Because we're all, in a way, looking for the wrong Jesus. We're looking for the dead Jesus, or the buried Jesus, or the weak Jesus, or the human Jesus, or the Jesus who makes my life better, the serve me Jesus, the walk with me and look after me Jesus, the tell me that, put me on your shoulders and tell me I'm the hero Jesus. And we're looking for all sorts of Jesus, but we can't find the real one. And so Jesus comes to us, and He calls us by name. And he says, Ezekiel. He says, Regan. Miriam, Esther. And He opens up our hearts to see who He is because all the head knowledge in the world doesn't save us. But a revelation in our hearts that He knows us, that we are known and loved by the risen Messiah, by the risen Savior, is something that sets our hearts aflame. To know the history that Jesus has risen from the dead, that all the evidence prove, points to that, that it's very reasonable to believe that, does nothing to your heart. But when you find out that that Jesus that was risen from the dead knows you by name, knows the hairs on your head, knows your past and your future, went to the cross with you on His heart, that changes everything. It's not just a historical figure. He's a lover. And He knows you by name. And He calls you by name. And when you place your faith in Jesus, it's not placing my faith in the historicity of what happened to that man who was, called himself a Messiah and raised from the dead. It's putting my faith in the person who calls me by name. Who says, Mark, come with me. Walk with me.
Believe in me. Journey with me. Put on my righteousness because I've already put on your sin. Put on my forgiveness because I've already paid for it. Put on my love because there's nothing you can do that will make you less loved. I had someone, I work in the offices here, and I had someone um, just walk in this week looking for someone else, but they stayed and spoke to me. They had a terrible experience of religion when they were five years old. Terrible experience of religion. And since then they've rejected, the, the, uh, not the Christian faith, but the Christian church. They haven't gone back. And they said, literally in the corridor here, they said, what I wished I could find is someone, I'm literally, their words, someone who would let people know that Jesus loves them. Someone who would let people know that Jesus can never, ever love them less. He loves them so much and nothing they do will, will ever tarnish that love. That Jesus has grace for them. That Jesus is near to them. That they can walk with Jesus. They can be near to Jesus. And they can have a personal relationship with Jesus. He said, I wish. He said, have you ever found anyone who said something like that? And I respectfully said, so I've found thousands. Every page of the Bible, almost every Christian I know, and almost every church I've been to. And I'm sorry for your experience, but that is not the gospel. And what you've just said you wished you could hear is the gospel. It's literally the gospel. And you could walk into almost any church, and I promise you, you will hear that message, and you will find people who are, uh, whose lives have been changed by that message. And you, your heart will leap with joy. And he got tears in his eyes. He's a 70-year-old man and he cried. His words are mine. This is the best conversation I've ever had in my life. You know, the, the truth is, the gospel is the best conversation you'll ever have in your life. Finding that God loves you, not with your head, finding that with your heart, is the best conversation you'll ever have in your life. Finding that you are known and loved, and that Jesus has cleared a pathway for you to come into a relationship with God. He's removed every obstacle. You bring nothing. You bring, no, you, you bring nothing. You come warts and all because He's paid it all. And every day we wake up, we find His new, mercies are new every morning. And His grace is sufficient for us. And we stumble and we fall and we get up and we find He's there. Not going, like probably like I do at times, being impatient. I told you about that step. I warned you. As a dad who's struggling with his child being hurt, it's like, I don't know why we respond like, I don't know why I respond like that. Why did you hurt yourself? Yesterday, my son got, uh, he lost a battle with his surfboard and got stitches on his face. Part of me wanted to be like, what were you doing? And the other part wanted to hug him and say, I'm so sorry. But what we find with Jesus is every time we stumble and fall, he picks us up and he dusts us off. My grace is sufficient for you. Walk with me. Come on. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm closing. Faith is not opposed to reason. A thoughtful consideration of the evidence will lead you to a step of faith. It's not faith itself. But it will lead you there and it's okay. 
And for those of you who are Christians who have never been allowed to ask the question, you know, how can I know this is true? Be reassured that it's totally wonderful to go on the journey and know the story that God's always told. And to fi- it's His history. It's His narrative. And you'll find within it beautiful truths on which your faith can stand. We learn and we find that Jesus is humble and that He reveals Himself to the humble. He could have revealed Himself to anyone first, but He first revealed Himself to Mary. It's contrary to anything that we could understand. Why didn't He start at the top and work His way down, the most influential and work His way down? Because Jesus' world is upside down. It's inside out. It's back to front. The first are last. The leaders serve. The humble see Him. The proud don't. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He starts at the bottom and He reveals Himself to to humble Mary. And we find Him in our humility as well. We find that we are massively loved by Him. When you, call, uh, when you hear him call your name, you'll not only see Jesus, but you'll see yourself. All of us, everyone, is trying to figure out who they are. Why am I here? What's my purpose? What's the meaning to life, to my life, to life? And when we find Jesus, we find ourselves. That's what happens when you get loved. In the world, we have a little picture of this. Someone, two people fall in love and they say something like, you've become my world. I'd be nothing without you. Right? Am I the only one who said things like that? (laughs) Anyone else? Please raise your hand just for my sake. Thank you. There's a few guys, no girls. That's interesting. Okay. We we know that. But but, uh, what we understand there What's, what's true there is that when you are loved, you find yourself. When you are loved, you are brought into who you, who you meant to be. I, per- I can't do that for my wife perfectly. She can't do that for me perfectly. We'll still be flawed. We won't be completely satisfied. But we do find that in Jesus. When we find that we are loved by God, then we find ourselves. And we realize, you know, this world can't make me or break me. There'll be good days, there'll be bad, there'll be suffering, there'll be joy, but none of it can disrupt who I fundamentally am in Jesus Christ. He can make use of my suffering, He can make use of my privileges. Whatever He chooses, I know who I am in Him. I'm loved. 